All right, you did great. Stay with us one more time. We'll read this scripture on the screen. Let's read this verse together. This is the one we'll be pressing through together again today. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can be seated. It's a delight to worship with you today. This is, ooh, look at that, spring break at college and everybody has some elbow room. I like this. What happened over here? Uh, It's a delight to worship God with you today. This is the time in our service when we give our attention to the preaching of the words of God. So I'll be serving that role this morning with you. Um, I'm excited about doing it. We'll have some text of scripture up on the screen. My words should be emerging from the truth of these words That's how we try and do this together. Um, Today is uh, one of those sermons, maybe every three or four, well, every Sunday, whatever we preach, collides with the thinking of the world. Sometimes it's just a more direct collision than other days. Today happens to be one of those very direct, head-on collisions. So just be prepared for that with me. Every Thursday afternoon at about 3 o'clock, I get this pit in my stomach. That's about the time in the week when I realize, oh no, in about 50 hours, I will be standing up in front of a bunch of people, and they will be staring back at me, expecting me to have something helpful and coherent and true and accurate to say, oh no. And there will be nowhere to hide in that moment. Whether it goes good or it goes bad, whether I am prepared or not, it is going down. If you ever call me on Thursday afternoon, that's probably what I'm going through in that moment. But then by God's grace, usually, I breathe and I remember that even though I am a nothing, ridiculous jar of clay, that's what every one of your pastors is, that the the gospel that I get to pour out to you on a Sunday morning, that is anything but ridiculous. Um, It is foolishness in the eyes of the world, yes, but it is the power of God for salvation and life and joy and peace for you. For you who would hear it and believe it and receive it and love it and bank your life on it. This Thursday, the pit in my stomach was bigger than usual because I realized we would be talking about one of the topics or doctrines that our world insists that we not talk about, that we not talk about it. That is the beautiful and holy and God-given distinction of male and female. I think you know this, but pastors and preachers and churches in every generation are given the opportunity to be faithful in some ways that are peculiar to their specific time and place. In other words, they will be judged, among other things, by Jesus on how well they held to his truth at the precise points where their world demanded that they not do that, where their world demanded compromise and concession and silence. So if you study church history, you see that for Augustine, it was the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. With Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Reformers, it was the doctrine of justification by faith. 
For us, together, among others, it is the doctrine of man, and that includes the doctrine of sexuality. Jesus will ask me, did you love the people that you were sent to shepherd, the people that you were sent to gospel enough to stand up and to speak my truth into the areas where they really, really, really needed to hear it? I need to be able to say yes. We need to be able to say yes. So that's what a sermon like today's is about. Just one thing before I begin. You know that in any given 40-minute sermon, we don't get to address and hit on everything together, right? We get to say one big thing. That's what we try and do. Say one big thing that you can hang on to and wrestle with and put in the bank of your soul. There are tons of other questions, emotions, uncertainties, peculiarities, particularities that may arise in your mind as we are speaking today. Those are good. Keep those in mind. Write them down. Feel free to ask about them. You don't have to do it today. We're going to be here for the next 10, 20 years together serving Jesus. We've got time. What I do need you to do is to work hard to not allow those things to distract you or shut you off from hearing the central and the main foundational doctrine that I'm trying to press with you today. If you can get there, all the other things fall into place from there. So let's pray and ask God's grace as we do this. Father, I'm a jar of clay, fragile and earthy. Every one of us is. But there's this treasure of the gospel that transcends us. There is this truth that emerges from your infinitely perfect character and gets to shape and define our lives. I pray that we jars of clay would say it and hear it clearly today and it would make an impact for the joy of the, of the people that you have sent us to for ourselves, for our sons and our daughters. Just be gracious to us by your spirit as we do this this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me start here. This is the very intense question. How do you think about your sex or your physical body? When you look down and you consider your physical body, do you think me getting this body is just another arbitrary event in a very, very, very long line of arbitrary, accidental, random, evolutionary, physiological events? That's it. And therefore... Whether this body happens to be male or female is kind of inconsequential and unimportant. Or do you look down and consider and think the triune God who knew me before my conception, who knits each one of us together in our mom's womb, has seen fit for me to be male or female and that's consequential. That's important. Which one? Is the sexual distinction just, I know you're familiar with these words by now, an arbitrary social construct that has been foisted upon people for way too long? Is it just a prison that we need to be free to break out of if we desire? Is it just irrelevant and so alterable, bendable reality? Or is your sex something that a loving and wise and gracious father has assigned 
to you for his glory, for your good, for the good of his world? Is it a gift that you get to receive and enjoy and steward really well? Is it an opportunity to show off the wisdom and the power and the grace and the diversity of the triune God? Which one is it? Okay, let me talk about what our current world's answer to this question is. You guys all have Vizio flat screens, some of you. Some of you wish you did. You all have MacBook Pros, some of you. Some of you wish you did. You get to watch ABC and Fox. You get to surf Yahoo. Any one of you could come up here and preach this five minutes. You know that our world is committed to the flattening of sexuality. You've seen this. To the erasing of the distinction between male and female. It's very ironic because we are a culture that talks a ton about diversity, but we are working toward the end of sexual diversity as God defines it. You live there. Now the speed which, which this has happened has been breathtaking, right? This new dogma that there is no more male and female was on the very fringes of American society in the 1970s. It is now in the seat of power. And that's in less than 50 years. If you study social history, that's fast. That's fast. And we could walk through a ton of examples to help understand what I'm trying to communicate. I'll just give you three. One is Facebook's new gender options selection. So this was from CNN from a couple of weeks ago. This was an article. In a nod to the, it's complicated, sexual identities of many of its users, Facebook on Thursday added a third custom gender option for people's profiles. In addition to male Female, Facebook now lets U.S. users choose from among some 50 additional options, such as, then it gives you the long list. And then here's the quote. When you come to Facebook to connect with the people and the causes and the organizations that you care about, we want you to feel comfortable being your true, authentic self. Do you feel that? that? That lines everything in that article. That is postmodern American thinking. Your true, authentic self has nothing to do with your physical body. Those are separate realities. So what we really need to do is to stop it with the male and female and add that to 50 or 100 or 1,000 different potential options. What's the dogma under that move in that article? There is no more male and female. Okay, two, Boston University, my alma mater. A new gender-neutral roommate policy. So in this month's Bostonia Alumni Magazine, there was an article on the move at BU to gender-neutral roommate selection options for undergraduates. It's not only no longer men live in this dorm and women live in this dorm. It's men and women live in the same dorms and men and women can live in the same rooms. Why? Because the idea is that sexual distinction doesn't matter anymore. Gender neutral. 
Sex eliminated, distinction erased. What's the dogma under that kind of a policy? There is no more male and female. Okay, one more. Recent wedding that Grace and I attended. It was a family wedding. It was so much fun to be there. The DJ went straight early 90s. So I was like in heaven. But the ceremony was troubling. And I'm paying attention to ceremonies, right? We've got Paul and Kelsey and Chris and Christine and Simon and Christine coming up. I'm getting a new suit for those weddings. I'm paying attention to the ceremony. It was troubling not just because the Father and the Son and the Spirit and gospel and word was eliminated from this whole ceremony, but it was the flat final words of the benediction. The justice of the peace had a man and a woman standing before him. And when he ended the wedding, he said, I now pronounce you partners for life. Do you feel that? You feel the difference? So in a biblical wedding ceremony, there is unity and diversity. But not here. The diversity was erased. And so you were not left that day with a husband and a wife coming together into one new life, you were left with partners, no male, no female. Okay, you guys could come up and tell us about the experiences that you've had in living and seeing and sensing this. Normally, if you would land in that spot on the doctrine of man, who we are, what it means to be male or female, you would have very little interest in what scripture has to say about this, right? Fine, that's fine. But what about those of us who have come to believe the gospel? What about those of us who have come to the conviction that in love for us and by his spirit, the Father has spoken truth in scripture, that that story and those words are our authority and get to shape how we think about life and how we actually go and live. Our question this morning is, does scripture compel us to embrace this new way of thinking about these things. Does Scripture teach us that it's a good thing? Come on, let's move beyond male and female. That's the big question. All right, in the last 10, 20, 25 years, some have started saying, it does, it does. And they have come very, very excitedly to the passage that we dealt with last week and that I'm dealing with today. And this is it. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So they've read this text of Scripture and gone, Light bulb. There it is. The Bible says that in Christ, there is no male and female anymore. And so as New Covenant Christians, we should fully embrace and fully affirm and be at the front of the line saying, let's flatten sexuality. Let's erase the distinction between male and female. No more talk about or recognition of or excitement in manhood or womanhood. Is that a responsible interpretation of this text? Is that what Paul was driving at? 
Okay, our answer is very important. And let me give you three reasons why the answer is no way. No way. Here's the first one. The context. As you read your Bible, you know that it is always bad Bible reading to take a verse from here and pull it out of its context and the words that surround it and run it over here to go make a point that you want to make with it. I call this Amelia Bedelia Hermeneutics. Everybody who's been reading books to little children for the last 10 years, you know who Amelia Bedelia is? Okay, she's this sweet little girl who has this unfortunate habit of taking words literally without paying attention to the context around those words. So when Amelia Bedelia is told to make a date cake, what does she do? Well, she goes to the fridge and she takes down the calendar and she cuts out all the dates and she puts them in a cake and puts them in the oven and she nearly burns the house down. When Amelia Bedelia is told to dress the turkey, what does she do? Tuxedo, bow tie, that thing is dressed, see? When she's told to steal home plate, you can imagine what happens in the next couple of pages. Now, this is wicked funny when Amelia Bedelia does it, especially if you have a five-year-old like Callie who's got a great sense of humor. But it's deadly when a pastor or a theologian or a church, a Christian, does it. Timothy George says this paragraph in his commentary. It's perfect to understand this. In recent years, this verse has been received much attention and been frequently jerked out of context and used to support a host of political and ideological agendas. By all accounts, it is an astounding statement, and we must do nothing to dampen its revolutionary character. That's, that's what I yelled about for 45 minutes last week. But to grasp its true meaning, we have to see how it fits within the flow of Paul's general argument in the passage and letter. Yes. That's what we labored to do together last week, and we said that with these words, Jesus' apostle Paul is insisting with us that grace transcends and overruns and unites all of our different earthy categories. That's what it does, including male and female. We said that justification is not held aside for the highly qualified few and certainly not just for the men or just for the women. It is freely available to anyone who would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus. In fact, we are one in Christ. All the different categories are one. Co-heirs of the inheritance. That's what I preached on because that's the context for this verse. He is not writing about sexual morality. He is not writing about marriage covenants. He's not writing about gender roles. That, that's not the context of this passage or this book. This is why for 2,000 years you will not find a commentator, a writer, a theologian who sees in this text a manifesto for the flattening of sexuality, who sees a bold declaration from Paul on the male-female distinction finally being erased. No. Justified Paul remained racially Jewish. 
Justified Onesimus remained a bondservant. Justified Aquila and Priscilla remained husband and wife, male and female. Paul's not driving for the end of those distinctions in every sense. No. His point is that we are justified by the same grace in the same way regardless of those distinctions. To say something more from this, to go from here to there, is to take a verse out of context. We never want to do that with Scripture. Okay, second one, second reason, is the phrasing that's driving us back to Genesis. So there's an interesting, man, I hope you love the words of your Bible. There's an interesting change in the construction of the text, just in this one stanza, one verse of Scripture, when Paul moves from the first two illustrations to the third one. Here's how he says it. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Ooh, do you feel that in there? You feel the change? Okay, what's that change about? By phrasing the male-female part of the triad in this way, Paul is, as he always does, echoing, alluding to, referencing, pushing us back to Genesis. Here's Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Okay, there's like a thousand hours of beautiful theology packed into that one stanza of Scripture. But do you feel the unity and the diversity? Do you feel the equality and the distinction. God, who is Trinitarian, who is three in one, was imaging that unity and diversity within his nature when he created us in his image. So we talk about unity. Men and women both created in the image of God. Equal in value, in worth, in dignity. We are one in creation. Amen. And we also talk about diversity. Men and women are not the same thing. They were created distinct from each other. And that distinction was written by God in our bodies. And that distinction is precious. And it is complementary. It is harmonious. In a word, it's good. It's good. And this is what God called it, right? When he was finished with the height of his creation, fashioning us equal and yet distinct in his image, what did God say? Before there was sin, before there was rebellion, before there was this big mess, what did he say? This is so good. Now you have to ask yourself, Did Paul reference Genesis in order to repudiate that? Is Paul saying that in Christ, all the creative goodness of Genesis is now altered? Is Paul saying the unity holds, but the distinction doesn't? There's no way. His point in this text is that we were created equally and what? We are justified equally. 
He is referencing Genesis so that you would feel that. But we also need to understand that if we went to other texts of Scripture in which Paul alludes to Genesis in the context of male and female, what does he do there? He makes the exact opposite or complementary point. In this case, he goes to Genesis to say what? Equality holds. In the other cases, he goes to Genesis to say what? And distinction holds. 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, and not just Paul, but Jesus and Mark and Matthew and talking about the beauty of the marriage covenant, where do they all drive? When talking about the beauty of the distinction, they all drive to Genesis. And they use those texts in support of the beauty and the importance and the permanence of our difference. In other words, if you pull all of the texts of Scripture together where New Testament writers look back to Genesis, the synthesized big idea would be what? It would be this. Equality holds. Distinction holds. To take this Genesis referencing text and go back and say, only equality holds, because I'm only reading this verse, is not a good way to read your Bible. Paul would not have been thinking that. All right, last one, number three. The whole rest of the scriptures. So the best tool for interpreting scripture is what? The best tool that we have. Well, it's the Holy Spirit, but he's not a tool. The best tool that we have is Scripture itself. Other Scripture. Allowing different texts of Scripture to shed light on others that we're studying together. Some say that this verse that we're looking at together today is like a mountain peak that sits up here above all the other texts of Scripture, older covenant and new. It sheds light on the others, but they shed no light on it. That's very dangerous to do Bible that way. To set up for yourself a very little canon within the bigger canon, where the texts that you like get precedence over the ones that you don't like so much. Instead, what we try and do is to hold all of Scripture in tension and ask the Spirit to help us see how it all coheres together. That doesn't mean that the New Testament doesn't in helpful ways show us how the older covenant is fulfilled. It means that we don't grab one verse and set it above all the others. And so if we were to take a week together, we won't, and go through the older covenant, you would see the big idea is the distinction is good and it must hold among God's people. We see that in the story of Genesis. We see that in the story of the city of Sodom. We see that in the sexual holiness codes. We see that in some of the civil laws. The big idea over and over and over again is you are equal, but you are distinct. And that distinction has to hold. It's really important because God intended for it. You see the same thing as you come into the New Testament We see it again in the same kind of clear warnings about muddying or ignoring the sexual distinction in Romans and Corinthians and Timothy. We see it in the many places as you read the New Testament where you will see that the inspired author begins to address men 
and women separately, distinctly, differently. I love those passages of Scripture. They say, women, wives, you have been freely and equally justified by the grace of Jesus. Now here's what it looks like for you to walk in that grace as a woman. Men, husbands, you have been freely and beautifully, equally justified by the grace of Jesus. Here's what it looks like for you to walk in that grace as a man. Each to the other. That's the New Testament. You are equal. You are distinct. And then I hope that you know that marriage itself was given to us to show off this beauty, to show off the glory of the gospel, to show off to the world how Christ, the bridegroom, loves and leads and gives his life for his bride. And how his bride, we, the corporate people of God, respond to our bridegroom and his love in glad and affectionate submission and partnership. We could keep going. What's the big idea throughout the New Testament? The male-female distinction is good. It's beautiful. It's precious. It needs to hold. So I'm trying to say to you is that the answer to the question of does this verse say that over there is no. You cannot responsibly take one quarter of Galatians 3.28 and say flatly and absolutely in every sense there is no more male and female. You can't do it. You know, ultimately, as with anything else that we teach you guys, this is not merely an exegetical conversation about Bible words, right? What is this? It is what it always is. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. You are going to have to decide what God said. Is it good or is it not good? What he said was beautiful. Is it beautiful or, or is it not beautiful? What he said was wise. Is it wise or is it not wise? Will you, by faith, believe what the scriptures declare to be true about you as a woman or as a man? Are you willing to say, I don't care what the world says. I don't care how my day is going. I don't care what my feelings say. I am going to revel in and walk in and hold to the sex that God, my Father, who loves me in his wisdom, has given to me. We were discipling our sons and daughters in family worship this week, and some of the nights they pray at the end. I wish I could record some of those prayers. Anyway, Brandon prayed the most beautiful, simple seven-word prayer. He said, Lord, thank you that I am a boy. And that is not a statement of pride or arrogance. If you guys know anything about my son, Brandon, that's, that's not one of his sin tendencies. He is the sweetest, humblest kid you're going to find. You know what that is? That is a confession of faith. 
We need to keep making them together. Every time I pray for the kids, do you notice that I say, Father, I pray for our sons and our daughters. They sit together. I pray the same prayer for them. They are equal, but they're also distinct. When we do wedding ceremonies, you know how we're going to end them? I now pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss your bride. You are one, but you remain distinct. Every time we choose to say the distinction is to the glory of God and it holds, that's a confession of great faith. It has been amazing to me the way that this particular church of men and women have had such unity around this very difficult topic. It has been precious to me the way that we had wrestled with, okay, given that the distinction holds, what does that look like? How does it work? What does it mean? I'm not getting into those details today. I'm saying that that unity hinges upon faith and submission to Scripture to say, the distinction holds. Now let's talk about what that can look like. Okay, last thing, three implications if we go there. They're all big. Number one is it will be difficult. (laughs) Very difficult. So it will be difficult for us to live here by faith as a church. Sometimes unity needs to be emphasized and we need to be all about it. Some of my favorite days of the year emphasize that unity. When we get that tank out here and we do baptisms, how does that thing roll? On the same day, in the same water, with the same words, in the same t-shirts, male, female. There is no male and female in the baptism tank. There is no male and female in the justifying grace of God. You should come here that day and not be thinking of those categories. They have been overrun and united by the grace of Jesus, and we are all about that. Sometimes, diversity needs to be emphasized. So, for example, we run a womanhood track, and there's no men invited to that track, and that's a good thing. Some of our godly women are pressing the truth of Scripture as it intersects with femininity to the glory of God. That's a beautiful place to say there's a distinction. It will be difficult us to know when is it unity, when is it diversity, when is it together, when is it apart. We have to give ourselves to that work. And of course, I think you know this will be very difficult individually, very difficult. For some of us, the baseline challenge is around sexual attraction, right? This is no theological, philosophical thing to talk about in the classroom. This is every day of your life where your mind, your soul, your very being is trying to deal with sexuality and the distinction. If that is you, we are for you and with you in that struggle. More importantly, Jesus is for you. Your identity does not need to be shaped by a pattern of temptation. It is shaped by the ransoming love of Jesus Christ for you. There is life there. That doesn't make it easy, but that God hope and power can meet you there. Of course, that's not the only place where there's struggle involved here, right? 
every man in here struggles in one way or another or lots of them to set his resolve and to say, okay, my father loves me and he made me a man and I'm going to walk in whatever that entails. Every woman in here struggles in one way or another to get her heart to say, okay, my father loves me and he saw fit that I would be female in his image and I'm going to walk in whatever that entails. Masculinity is not easy. Femininity is not easy. But they are worth the fight. And they are worth the fight because God's glory shines in these things. Okay, number two, you will be misunderstood and you may be hated. So you know this already, right? That's why it ends up tense in the room on days today. Our friends, our family, our neighbors who we love, what have they been indoctrinated with since birth, dogmatized with since birth, at least if you're under 40? What's the only thing that you've been told? Equality is good. Distinction is evil. Equality is good. Distinction is bad. Equality is everything. Distinction is should be eliminated. Because of that, it is very, very hard for a Bostonian to get their minds around the truth that equality and distinction are both good in the proper places, in the right senses. This is what? This is Trinitarian thinking, right? And the secular mind cannot wrap itself around Trinity, when it tries to, it has a hard time. So you will be misunderstood. It will be assumed that as soon as you talk the way that I'm talking, it's hate speech when we actually say, this is love speech, love speech, very easily misunderstood. And sometimes when it even is actually understood and grasped, the first And the most natural response of the secular mind to this truth is to hate it. There's a reason that I've been very methodical, methodical, and very slow and very careful this morning. That's because this is no safe and bland and innocuous truth of Scripture that we're dealing with. If we embrace and love and live this truth together, we will be confronting one of our culture's most deeply entrenched idols, right? Nobody likes when their idols get threatened. Sexual license is in the pantheon of Bostonian gods. It's like on our Mount Rushmore, along with the love of money and the hatred of authority and some others. And so... We Bostonians want to do what we want to do with our bodies. That's an idol for us. And so our rule is, I affirm you, you affirm me, everybody's happy. The second that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, brings that dogma into question, there's difficulty. There's trouble. I don't know if you know who Rosaria Butterfield is, but she is a Christian woman 
who spent a couple of decades of her life working as hard as she could to erase the distinction between male and female. She literally wrote the book on it. She was a, an English professor of queer theory at Syracuse University for a decade. But then Rosaria had a collision with the grace and the truth of the risen Christ. And his mercy overran her soul and Jesus justified her. And now she is writing and she is speaking about the beauty of the distinction that she has come to embrace. And she is getting unbelievably beat up for it. I just need you to know that that is what it is. We need to set our hearts to humility and compassion and empathy. But even if we do that, there will be places where misunderstood becomes, oh, now I understand what you're saying, and I hate it. More and more humility and empathy is not going to matter. If you stand with Jesus here, you will get beat up with Jesus here like Jesus did in so many ways, but that's worth it too. And the last reason is there's one more implication, and this one should be super exciting to you. And this is what your entire life should be about. God will get a ton of glory. Bostonian culture needs really badly some bold and some humble and some gospel-centered churches where they can see what unity and diversity looks like together. Need it desperately. We have the opportunity to show that off. Justifying grace freely offered to everyone and justified men living as holy men. Justified women living as holy women. Each for the other. Happy and holy and content and fruitful a church where it's not a big, confused mess. A church that reflects the magnificent Trinitarian unity and diversity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's it. God's highest glory and your deepest joy and our clearest witness, they all coincide as we give ourselves to this by faith, that would be worth it. That would be worth it. Let's pray together. Jesus, you taught us that the word of God is like a seed and it gets planted in us. And if it takes root, there is an explosion of life-giving, God-glorifying harvest. Uh, the little seed that we have planted today is a is a hard one, and our minds race with all of what the implications may be. I pray that you would cause our hearts to believe your word to be true and to believe what you declare to be really good to be really good. We need you by your spirit to help us understand what does this mean, what does this not mean, how does this look in a home, in a relationship, in a marriage, in a church? We need your grace bad. 
But first, we need you to set us free from the idol that says, I get to autonomously define who I am. My identity is what I decide. I pray instead that you would, for each of us, rework our identity as the adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ who have been ransomed from this world and saved for a better one to come and get to right now by faith walk in glad obedience for your glory. If you could do that, I know that our joy would be the fullest right there. I pray that in any way that we would stumble into error on these things, you would graciously pull us back to truth. And I do pray that you would give us some backbone and some resolve to say our Father is good and our Father is wise in all that he does. And we're going to walk in that together. Hear my prayer for these things and answer. Amen. You have, no, you have no idea how much I appreciate you listening and at least giving the Word of God a chance to settle in your heart and to think through and fight through these things with us. That's beautiful for me. Today we come down to how many tables? Feast with Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. And then we'll stand and we'll sing together in response to the wisdom and the grace and the power and the love of our God. Stay with us and we'll do that together.